Greetings, and welcome to Montessori in Action, a podcast for Montessori educators to remind you that you are not alone. I'm your host, Elizabeth Slade, and let's spend some time listening to what is in the hearts and on the minds of other Montessorians. Our next guest is Mira Debs, who is the executive director of Yale University's Education Studies Program and a lecturer in the sociology department. She's the author of the book, Diverse Families, Desirable Schools, Public Montessori in the Era of School Choice, that came out in 2019 from Harvard Education Press. Her Montessori research has been published in American Education Research Journal and the Journal of Montessori Research. She serves as the chair of the board of Elm City Montessori School, which is New Haven's public Montessori school program. She also helped to co-found Montessori for Social Justice, a grassroots network of Montessori educators that was formed in 2013. Welcome, Mira Debs. So happy to have you on Montessori in Action podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Wonderful. I thought we'd start out today at the top of 2021 talking about your book that came out in 2019, um, Diverse Families, Desirable Schools, Public Montessori in the Era of School Choice, and hear a little bit both about the book and about what happened after the book was launched and the work that you did um, following it. Sure, absolutely. Um, So this book first came out of the fact that um, when I wanted to be a teacher in public schools, I had no idea that there were public Montessori schools. And um, I really wanted to teach and work in racially diverse schools. Um, And I had also gone to um, a Montessori preschool in, in the south side of Chicago as a kid. Um, but I had no idea that there were public Montessori schools. And so Montessori didn't fit into my framework of being able to do the work of improving public education. Um, uh, it, it was kind of a side thing. Mm-hmm. And so when I became a grad student in sociology, um, and I also as a parent, was interested again in Montessori and discovered at that point that there were public Montessori schools and actually got involved uh, with a community in New Haven that was working to bring a public Montessori school to New Haven. Um, it seemed really important to to share more broadly um, that public Montessori schools existed um, for um, a broader public to know about. Um, And I was also really interested as a sociologist in thinking about how schools are social places that gather people of really different backgrounds together, um, and particularly what kind of impact they can have on parents um, and bringing together parents across uh, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic status lines um, to interact in a space that they might not have otherwise come together. Um, I was really inspired by the work of colleagues like Maya Kuchiara and Lynn Posey Maddox, who were writing about um, what was happening uh, to city schools as neighborhoods gentrified. Um, 
and some of the opportunities that happened in those neighborhood schools that were um, now racially diverse where they hadn't been before, but some of the challenges of um, the power dynamics that happened there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was really interested in thinking about um, what would happen in that context in a Montessori school and um, could something like Montessori and this very intentional pedagogy be um, a stickier glue to bring families of really different backgrounds together. Um, So with all of that in mind, I started doing research um, and spent about a year and a half hanging out at two two communities of public Montessori schools in Hartford, Connecticut. They're um, magnet schools. Um, I spent a lot of time um, with the parents um, at PTA meetings, at planning events in the mornings when they were waiting for their kids. Um, if they were in the preschool program, I sat in in classrooms. Um, I went and interviewed fa- families in their homes or at Dunkin' Donuts um, and basically just wanted to learn as much as possible about how families of really different backgrounds were experiencing Montessori. Um and also how they were experiencing uh, the community that was created around these two public Montessori schools. As I was doing work in Hartford um, at the two Montessori schools, I also wanted to learn as much about Montessori as I could. Um, I took an AMI assistance training course at uh, MCTNE. Um, so I always joke when I go to Montessori gatherings, people say, you know, what's your training? And I say, well, I, I'm not, I don't have the uh, primary or elementary certificate, but I am qualified to work as a classroom assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that was really great to be steeped in um, an introduction to the Montessori method. I also, my son was a year old at that time. And so it was really powerful to um to be learning about Montessori as I was a parent and um, to be thinking about observational language. And I started using observational language and my husband started using observational language. Um, so that was really transformative to us as parents. From your research in the two Hartford schools, you came up with sort of three categories of families. Mm-hmm. Um and the way that you sort of coded your research over the time of your conversations. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you noticed there and how that fell on racial lines and almost sort of a, a disturbing replication of what was maybe happening academically in classrooms around um, opportunity gaps? Yeah. So I think what I expected to find at the beginning was I had a much more rosy view of um the way that um, people choosing a Montessori school would would bring everyone together and there would kind of be this kumbaya community. Um, and as I started talking to parents about Montessori, um, I found that people chose a public Montessori school for a wide variety of reasons. Um, and for some people, the fact that it was Montessori was incredibly important. For some people, they were very, very knowledgeable about Montessori. They described themselves as either true believers or, um, uh, you know, just said, I love Maria Montessori. And this is the reason I'm driving my children 45 minutes from the suburbs every day into the school, um, because uh, the two schools were um, both uh, suburban and city magnet schools. Um, and then for other families, 
they said, you know, I like the school because it's a magnet school or I like the school because it's a nice building. Um, I like the school because my children are doing well academically. But the fact that it was Montessori um, was not especially important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I tried to um, as I tried to group families in different categories, I saw at this particular school and I, and I don't. I certainly don't suggest that this is universal, but it's been really striking to me as I've talked about the book with different communities, how much um, how much parents and educators have said, yes, we absolutely see these patterns happening at our schools. So there were, there were the families that identified as true believers. Um, there were the families that identified as being satisfied with the school, but their, their big focus was that it was a good school, not necessarily that it was Montessori. Um, and then there was another category of parents that had been very intentional in their choice, but as time went on, be- they became more and more conflicted about the choice. Um, and so they would use words like, I'm, I'm unsure, I'm conflicted, um, some things work for me, other things are not working for my child. Um, and at least in the context of the Hartford Magnet Schools, um, of the 50 or so parents that I interviewed, um, a lot of the people who were the super true believers were um, white parents. Um, a lot of the parents who were the satisfied parents were uh, black and Latinx parents um, who came from fairly working class backgrounds. Um, and their comparison set was um, other schools in Hartford. Um, and the parents who were most conflicted were middle and upper middle class black and Latinx parents um, who had made a very intentional choice for Montessori, um, were choosing between Montessori and other magnet schools or Montessori and other suburban schools. Um, and what they what they talked about um, was surprising to me and really made me want to dive in further to understand what their critiques were. Um, they felt like Montessori was incredibly affirming to their children, incredibly empowering to their children. They saw the social skills, the leadership, um, the social emotional development, and they really, really appreciated that. Um, they felt like the the discipline um, was much better than at other schools. Um, sometimes they compared it to um, some of the very strict charter schools in, around that had been um, alternatives. Um, but where they um, were more concerned was about um, academic progress. They had really strong academic aspirations for their children. Um, and when they raised concerns to school staff, um, they felt like they weren't being heard or they weren't being responded to. Um, uh, so th- things that might be small issues like um a school policy of not assigning homework um, was something that a number of parents told me that was a worry for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that uh, teachers would say, oh, well, we let we we let the learning originate from the child um, became things that they were worried about because to them, um, they had experienced a context where um, teachers might have uh, limited expectations for children, um, mm-hmm. or they might have come from a family background of missed educational opportunities. Um, so the idea that we're just going to set, take a step back and really let let everything emerge from the child uh, seemed quite risky to them. Um, they wanted to know that their children were going to be pushed to be academically successful. Um, and uh, they felt a sense of urgency that sometimes they didn't 
um, hear coming communicated from the school. I just wonder then your involvement in Elm City and uh-huh. the family community there. If um, since your research happened sort of simultaneously, but also was this was all emerging, how's how's that impacted your um, contribution to creating a cohesive community for Elm City or have you seen those same patterns emerge or what just what are your thoughts in the New Haven community yeah um I I certainly can't um claim credit for all of the ways that Elm City Montessori has flourished in really beautiful ways um there has been incredible leadership at the school um with um Amelia um, Allen, who is in charge of anti-bias, anti-racist uh, education at the school, um, and um, Julia Webb and Eliza Halsey um, in other leadership roles as principal and executive director. Um, you know, I think um, a couple different strands. They have really worked concertedly in the last four years to build the parent community to have um, an ABAR parent group um, Mm -hmm. that has spent years educating itself, has participated in Montessori for Social Justice conferences. They've got uh, grants from the Graustein Foundation to support that work. Um, So the parents have been doing the work and have been having conversations, um, and it's been happening and unfolding in a very welcoming way to Mm -hmm. the parent Mm -hmm. community. Um, and they, they've done a lot in terms of the weekly messages to families to, to communicate that. Um, they also have been, um, you know, working very consciously about um, the academic achievement of students. Um, and I know that that has involved, um, you know, presenting disaggregated data to the board at every meeting to talk about um, what student achievement looks like by student subgroups. Um Elm City Montessori, like I think almost every public Montessori school I've talked to, has an opportunity gap of um, academic test scores um, broken out by racial group um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. mirror mirrors overall trends in um, what we see in public education more broadly. Um, mm-hmm. And they're working really hard to realize that. So a lot of it is about um, providing supplemental reading support for students. Um, and, you know, all of those kinds of things are made more challenging by the pandemic. Oh, yeah. 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 I was going to ask you, actually, in the back of your book, you have some recommendations for mm-hmm. um, schools working to bring diverse families in in a more conscious way. And I was reading through them before our conversation and wondering if you've had reflections on strategies now in this pandemic time of ways that schools can be doing greater outreach, especially in a time where, my goodness, families are intimately involved in the educational program in a brand new way. Yeah. And so what have you, what have you seen emerging there? Um, I think I would say first that my hat goes off to um, every educator and every school leader who's doing this work right now. I, I am so grateful for all of you, and I can't imagine how difficult it is. Um, and, you know, I have an elementary age and middle school age child at home, and um, we always appreciate school, but we appreciate it so much more right now as we're, mm-hmm. we're doing a disproportionate share. Um, I, I don't know that I have particular 
expertise because I'm not in the classroom like so many people are right now. I mean, I'm in a in a college classroom and teaching classes to Yale students, but I'm not mm-hmm. in a in a Montessori classroom. Um, the the couple things that I've been inspired by, um, one of my former students who's now a teacher in Chicago Public Schools said um, that actually teaching remotely has helped to foster stronger relationships with families because mm-hmm. she sees them every day now mm-hmm. um, and, and has kind of facilitated an ease of communication um, that wasn't there before. Um, and I think as a counterpoint to you know, the incredible challenge of the loss of the, if people are teaching remotely, the loss of the physical materials, um, that it's also an opportunity to really lean into the, the, the philosophy of Montessori of following the family and following the child. And, and really thinking about what does that mean in this particular context? Um, at Elm City Montessori, I've been really inspired by the way that, um, you know, they leaned in immediately to um, really thoughtful online instruction and using it as much to be academic as as well as also to be social for the children. Um, they have um, social emotional sessions um, where the kids are doing relaxation and meditation exercises. Um, and they also have written work packets for families who are, are um, not who don't want to have their children be online. Um, they've, they've made a lot of work to ensure that everybody has tech access and has Wi-Fi if they need it. But there are some families who that, that method of instruction isn't working for them. Is your elementary age child in the, in an Elm City elementary class? He's not. No. Okay. All right. So you know this from the board, from being on the board, not necessarily from being a a parent recipient. Got it. Got it. Um, I, I would love to have him there. Um, but, uh, I am very happy that uh, the broader community gets to have this school. And mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. um, in part, it's an exercise about creating something that's not necessarily um, for your children. It's for, it's for the broader community. Mm-hmm. So there's some, there was a big outreach. I know this was true nationally to make sure everyone had the technology they needed yeah. to connect. And then there's been just, a, you know, a lot of conflicted feelings about that much time on technology. Yeah. Yeah. As the only source of connection, it's been really important for meeting those elementary social needs, um, as well as moving things forward academically with lessons. But it's also, you know, had um, challenges for families with multiple children, Mm -hmm. with multiple needs for the same device. And just, I mean, each... Each community has echoes of some similar shared problems, and I'm sure Elm City is no exception. So they've made sure everyone has technology, and they're also doing packets for Mm -hmm. families that are... But the third um, thing that they're doing, which has been really... I I was just over at the school last week. Um, They do a a couple hours of outdoor school, Um, Mm. even as the school is is physically closed because of high rates of COVID in Connecticut right now. So, um, you know... They, they've had a lot of interest from families, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as you might imagine, because we're all desperate to get our children out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I was over there and the children, you know, th- there had been a big snowfall. So um, there were some kids that were making a snow fort, other kids that were making um, a snow person. It was a non-gendered, non-binary person. Um, and uh, some, the, another group was making this really intricate snow pattern on a tree. Um, and it was just, it was really beautiful to see. Um, and so they have, um, 
have really worked to um, expand the outdoor offerings and take advantage of the outdoor space this year um, in order to keep the community together during this time. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about the work you did after the book came out with mm-hmm. um, community meetings. Yeah. So um, one of the th- reasons that I that that pushed me to get the book published as quickly as I could um, was that um, I had been in conversation with public Montessori educators um, from 2014 onwards, and I had um, a sense of how of the things that people were grappling with, and and I was trying to write something that would be um, would be useful to those communities. Um, part of that work was. Um, helping to start Montessori for Social Justice um, starting in 2013. Um, what was initially just um, a, a meeting at the AMI World Congress. In the hall where you said, anybody yeah. who wants to meet, meet me right. in the hall. Well, I think, yeah, I think I, I put down an email list. And then uh, Annie Frazier, who now runs Montessori Partnerships for Georgia, said, you know, come meet at this point at lunch. And we had 50 people turn up. And um, and so, you know, from there, um, the group just kind of grew and grew and grew. And it's been um, incredible to see uh, the leaders that have emerged from it and the projects and connections that have been made. Um, and, um, you know, so, so conversations there, um, conversations of um, people calling me up and saying, you know, um, my superintendent says that our Montessori program isn't good for kids of color. Do you have any research that you can show me um, to to say that they're wrong? Or, you know, our Montessori program is about to close and we want to keep mm-hmm. it open. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so once the book came out, I was really eager to continue those conversations and also find a way to make the book accessible to public Montessori um, leaders and educators. Um, and that was part of the reason that, um, you know, I published with Harvard Education Press and, I, and the book came out in paperback immediately so that it wouldn't be, you know, one of these academic books that's $100 and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. expensive that nobody can afford to read it. Um, so I was very fortunate. I got a grant from uh, Wen Ventures and the Brady Foundation um, and uh, collaborated with um, Montessori and anti-bias, anti-racist educator Britt Hawthorne um, on setting up a, a grant, um, a community community reading grant. Um, and we were ultimately able to um, select 10 public Montessori programs from around the country um, that got 20 copies of the book. Um, and then we had a Zoom uh, discussion with them back in the day when getting on Zoom was quite novel and uh, <laughs> a, a new technology. Mm-hmm. Ahead uh, of the curve there. Yes, we were we were way ahead of the curve. Um, so throughout the fall of 2019, we had these community conversations um, with uh, teachers, principals, and parents at public Montessori schools around the country. Um, And that was really powerful for me to to hear people reflecting on how the book was giving them a language to talk about patterns that they had seen in their school or things that they didn't necessarily understand about the history of Montessori um, or... 
um, dynamics to think about how the choice process in their community was impacting who ended up enrolling in their school. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, there uh, was one parent I remember um, in a public Montessori school in Charleston, South Carolina, um, where there was a small public Montessori program that had been brought into a historically black elementary school. And, um, you know, reading the book made her realize how much the Montessori program was part of a displacement of that black community. Mm. Um, And it was a very raw conversation. She was near tears in the course of our conversation as she was reflecting on how much she loved the program and was enjoying it for her own children, but was realizing that it had had this bigger cost to the neighborhood community. Mm-hmm. Um, and she mm-hmm. wrote me a couple times after that, talking about the way that she was now advocating um, for public Montessori to be implemented differently in Char- Charleston to ensure that it would be done um, with more community buy-in um, and without those kinds of patterns of displacement. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think um, that interaction speaks to some of the bigger points of the book, um, which is that public Montessori is is both part of the Montessori world, but it's also part of the public education world. Mm-hmm. And as such, public Montessori schools can't be these special little snowflakes off in their own world. They, they're part of the public education ecosystem. Um, and they really need to be first and foremost, public schools that are um, accessible to all children and all families um, and are um, are not just kind of scooping out um, in, in the school choice research language. We talk, talk about that creaming off the top. Mm-hmm. They're not just pulling out special students, that they're su- serving and supporting children of all backgrounds. Um, and they're not having a a negative impact on the public education system around them. Mm-hmm. So what, from these 10 conversations that you had with the community, what are some of the themes that lifted or pieces that you walked away with as you're reflecting back now mm-hmm. on, yeah, what, what emerged in those conversations? Um, I mean, I think again and again, it was hearing how hard it was to do Montessori. Yeah. Um, and, um, the the exhaustion that teachers felt. Um, so sometimes it was challenging for them in the middle of October as the school year was winding up to come and um, have a deep conversation about, um, you know, a, a fairly academic reading of Montessori. Um, but I was also, um, I was also really inspired by um, the kind of the, that in each community there would be one or two people, whether it was a parent or a principal or a teacher, who was really provoking a spark of questions of saying, you know, it's not just enough for us to have to run a really good public Montessori school, but we really need to be asking ourselves who's here, who's not here, and why, who's being included, um, how is everyone feeling the same sense of um, of belonging and inclusion in our school community. How would this look differently? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciated, um, even though you know we were just kind of teleporting in for an hour, um, how people were laying out 
where the, what they were working on and, and really um, allowing Britt and I to offer suggestions of how they could work differently. Um, one of the things that, that we did do as part of the project um, is we, any kind of best practices that emerged from these conversations, we added and updated um, from the appendix in the book. So on nice. um, on my website, miradebs.com, that appendix is continually being updated as we get additional ideas and suggestions from different schools. Great. Great. That's wonderful. That's good for our listeners to know. Yeah. Um, and also might be a good moment to say that there'll be a link on the website for um, purchasing a copy of the book if the listeners have don't already have a copy and would like to read it. Do you want to say anything more details about that before I ask you my next question? Yes. So Harvard Education Press has made a 20% discount through the month of January. Um, I think that knocks about $6 off the cost of a book. Um, and um, I'm the, I'm blanking on the code. So, um, but I sent it to you, Elizabeth. And, <laughs> yeah, it'll um, be up on our website and people can put the code in and, yeah. and get a discount. Um, so, you know, I hope you enjoy reading the book and um talking about it in your communities. And um, I have continued to have community conversations with training centers um, and schools. So um, if that's something of interest to people, um, please be in touch with me. Great. So you were winding your way into this, but part of your book takes some time to share with readers the idea that um, Montessori is not just now becoming diverse, that there is a history um, would you just talk a little bit about that and your your research and discovery in that area? Yes. So one part of the book um, was was um, trying to trace um, how Montessori was imagined and experienced in the U.S. Um, mainstream media over the course of the 20th century. And so um, I used the um, ProQuest historical newspapers archive um, and just kind of started going through from 1907 onwards. Um, and um, I, I love I love going through old newspaper archives. And it was so fascinating to me um, to chart um, the changes in how Montessori was being talked about. And, um, you know, I had read the history of the Montessori movement um, and biographies of Maria Montessori. So I knew about Nancy McCormick Rambush and AMS and things like that. Um, but um, it was striking to me how much that resurgence of Montessori in the 1950s came along with this um, uh, presentation of Montessori as um, like rocket propelled education for mm -hmm. super geniuses. It was kind of tied to the Sputnik era anxiety. Um, and so um, Montessori was being promoted as an intellectual alternative to play-based preschools that were really not doing anything for children. And instead, you know, you could have your children learning multiple languages and learning long division by the time they were four. And this was going to be great because <laughs> we would catch up to the Soviets. So um, you know, that's not the way that we're talking about Montessori today. And it was really interesting to see that framing of Montessori. Um, then when I got to the 1960s, I, you know, I, I nearly fell out of my chair because one of the 
places that I came across in the Los Angeles Times was a Malcolm X Montessori school in Compton, California. Um, and and this um, school that was started by Hakeem Jamal was part of a, a whole wave of Black-led Montessori schools um, created at that time. And again, um, you know, the underpinning was was the same Montessori pedagogy, but the reasoning and the framing behind it was about um, creating cultural pride, uh, creating an affirming curriculum that would counter some of the racism of mainstream schools. Um, and um, a number of these um, Black Montessori leaders and Latinx Montessori leaders had been really integral to um, creating what eventually became public Montessori programs across the U.S. Um, so uh, you have um, a, a black and uh, white Montessori cooperative, Cosmic Montessori in Milwaukee, that uh, leads into the public Montessori program in Milwaukee. Um, you have Martha Uriosti, um uh, a Latinx educator in Denver uh, who creates the first public Montessori program. Um, and so so tying together those narratives um, really helped me to see um, that um, not only had there been this really incredible leadership by Montessori educators of color from the 60s onwards, um, but a lot of that had never been um, had never been remembered in the Montessori community. Um, and, and they had been really integral to, to creating and expanding the public Montessori programs that exist today. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and then there were also a number of really incredible pioneers. Um, Rosalind Williams was, um, someone whose story I tell at the beginning of chapter three, um, who, who ran a public Montessori program in Roxbury, Massachusetts for, um, roughly, you know, 25 years, um, she had funding from the Ford Foundation. Um, she came up with this incredible plan for a black community and a um, Montessori preschool from uh, a Montessori school from birth to 18. Um, and she got uh, the famous architect Buckminster Fuller to design a, pl a plan for that. <laughs> I was so disappointed when I was reading your book that it didn't come to fruition. Oh, I was I know. just really like, oh, yeah. come on. <laughs> so she, um, you know, she, she had the plan. She had the, she had the vision. She needed $4 million and she did her darndest to raise that money, but she did not have access to the same kind of capital that, um, a lot of the white led Montessori programs of the time did. Um, so, you know, we also have to look at how, how, systemic racism and um, discrimination limited the vision of a lot of those leaders. Mm -hmm. um, or not the vision, but maybe the ability to realize it. The ability, to absolutely. It. The ability yeah. to realize the vision. Um, and I should say that um, uh, Angela Murray and Luz Donson and um, uh, Aize Sabatier and um, I think it's Kiara Cross, have done um, some really exciting follow-up work on um, Black uh, Montessori hidden figures. And Luz uh, actually found um, a um, like a manifesto by Rosalind Williams in ah. the, the Buckminster Fuller archives at Stanford. So she's going through wow. that. Um, so I'm so excited to see um, some more follow-up research about um, her vision 
Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I think it's been really powerful for me to see how um, how the Montessori community has um, taken the knowledge of these um, Montessori hidden figures and has mm-hmm. embraced them um, to, uh, you know, to, to really start to counter this perception that Montessori has been this very white-led movement um, um, because that just simply isn't true. Right, right. So you mentioned earlier um, connecting with teacher preparation programs, and I wonder what threads or pieces from your book do you feel are critical pieces that could be part of teacher formation as, as new people come into the Montessori community to get trained what are the nuggets or aspects of your research or your book that you would like to, them to take with them? Yeah. Well, I think there's an exciting conversation happening in the broader ed world about um, getting anti-racist education alongside teacher education. Um, and part of that involves understanding um, your own racial identity formation and where that stands in um, in the context of the racial history of the U.S. Um, my book doesn't do that, but what I do have is I have a kind of a, a racial history of Montessori in the U.S. And so I think it's really important um, for uh, teachers in training to know Montessori in a historical context, along with learning um, the Montessori pedagogy and reading work by Maria Montessori, um, because just having this ahistorical idea of Montessori um, can create all kinds of misperceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's useful to be thinking about and talking about um, what um, what about Montessori is great in supporting children of all different backgrounds and where are the stumbling blocks, both in how Montessori is, is delivered, um, but also how it's communicated to families. Um, right, and, right. and so I, you know, I think the lessons about the conflicted fit and um, the concerns about academic rigor are really important pieces for, um, for educators and educators in training to be talking about very consciously. Mm-hmm. And even pieces in there about access to the conversation, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, who's, who's in those conversations, when are they held and how are we supporting sort of a, a cross section of our families as part of it so that those can be very dynamic conversations mm-hmm. about rigor that both the, um, you know, all three of those categories are in discussion about yeah. the, the, program that their children are experiencing. So it isn't just, a, you know, an emotional, social, emotional gift, um, nor is it, you know, what the satisfied families, like it's a good school, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a good safe school, but that we're kind of opening up all the topics across all of the um, cross sections to really deeply engage with what is this, what is this unique form of education that we're pulling together here in your in your neighborhood and what does that mean for your child what does that mean for your family how are Mm -hmm. we thinking about that together and I think it's also really important um for the families who um have 
uh, questions about Montessori are are ambivalent about Montessori, that they're, they still continue to be welcomed into the yeah. school community and, and that their mm-hmm. challenges are welcomed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the limiting ideas of school choice, and I really push back hard against this in the book, is that um, you should continuously be searching for the school that's a good fit. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and that is really a luxury for a lot of families. Um, so many families will end up with a school that is an okay fit, but may not be the perfect fit. And um, so rather than say, as I have sometimes heard Montessori educators say, oh, you know, we end up with these families who don't really know anything about Montessori and they've really taken away the spot from people who really want to be here. Those are the families that you have. And so you work with the families that you have and and you follow their needs and you support them as best you can. Um, and and you don't just say, because you're not a true believer of Montessori, you don't belong here. Yeah, I think, you know, one really interesting element of the whole thing is what you're just talking about, the idea of fit and a perfect fit and just like really opening up what what even is that? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what does that even mean? And that, you know, as Montessorians, our charge is that the method is a fit for all children and families. Like it is a universal design because it's based on observation and adaptation based Mm -hmm. on need. Mm -hmm. And so how, how are we doing that to serve a wide population in the classroom? And are we doing that with our families? Right. Even if we're doing that well in classroom, which I think we're all needing to be constantly bringing that to our best attention as brought up by the data showing us that there are still gaps in, um, you know, test scores. So we're still working on that piece. But in addition to that, how are we doing that in a wider community lens where we're figuring out how everyone feels their sense of belonging, feels their fit? Even Mm -hmm. if, I mean, everybody's not going to, hopefully there isn't one person that agrees with every single thing, right? Mm -hmm. That there isn't that utopia, that everyone feels a feeling of fit because their view on it is valued and is changing it for the better you know as a as a community we are shaping this to become the strongest thing for the children um, that we possibly can maybe that's utopia right there but i do think your book brings that out like what if we had this strength of conversation um that could bring something even stronger well and a lot of it comes down to the quality of the relationships and there's such um such power and potential um for incredible family school relationships from um, having a teacher for three years and really getting to know the child and the family well um, and having that deep kind of partnership. Um, so that that potential is there. Um, and it was always just um, so powerful to me to go in and observe um, classrooms at the start of the school year and see how much they were just continuing from the previous year because they had the continuity of two-thirds of the kids um, just continuing on and picking up their work as before and picking up their relationships as before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how might we do that with families in the wider community, with grandparents and foster families and the, the larger, wider community that we're bringing in the new people, but there's this sense of community already in place Rather than the beginning of each school year is now we're making community, but yeah. that we create something that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk about your book and your research and 
your thoughts on all of it. Is there anything we want to add before we close up? I, I think the final thing that I would say um, is, uh, or I don't know, I may, I may see lots of final things. Um, thank you. <laughs> I really enjoyed having this conversation and it's been great to talk with you. Um, I, if you're like me, um, you may have listened to the podcast, Nice White Parents this fall. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a good one. Boy, yeah. Who's- yeah. Yeah. It was um, compelling. I was like, I was so happy it was all made by the time I found it. So I could just binge listen to right. the whole thing. Um, and so um, there are parts of this book that are like nice white parents of the Montessori community. Um, and um, so I hope that this is useful uh, to parents and to teachers and to community members and reflecting on um how Montessori, um, how the Montessori movement can continue to work to um, improve and expand and be more accessible, um, and to reflect on the fact that just because something is is public and free tuition does not necessarily mean that it is equitable and accessible to everyone. Um, so that that this book um, helps to have those conversations in each community about what are we doing and what can we um, continue to do to make our program um, reflective of our broader community and empowering to everyone in our community. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just um, eager for the book to be useful in continuing, um, continuing the work of supporting public education and supporting the work of public Montessori in particular. So um, when, uh, when I teach an introductory class on education to Yale students, I always make sure that um, Yale students know about Montessori and they know about public Montessori um, and, and know about other forms of progressive education. Um, and it's always powerful to me when students say, I never knew that school like this existed um, because um, then they know and, right, right. and they can seek out opportunities to connect in a variety of different ways. Mm. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and energy and mm, thoughtful consideration of how to move the public Montessori movement forward. My pleasure. Thank you for this podcast. I've really enjoyed listening so far. Wonderful. Thank you. Our show is a project of Public Montessori in Action, elevating voices in the community to forward the mission. Our host is Elizabeth Slade. Our producer is Isaac Price Slade. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with others. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.